if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here is Paul's true desire as we look at these verses. Paul here stresses to young Timothy that the fundamentals of the faith are fundamental to all of life. I had a baseball coach in high school who forever changed a lot of my thinking and and mostly in a good way because he really was someone who loved loved his players. His name was Coach Ludovico. It pains me to tell you I forget his first name, but man, that guy could play baseball. And I'll never forget his approach to the game because he also would philosophically teach us on the team fundamental truths about life as well. For him, baseball was all about the fundamentals and it's why we won games. After one particular searing loss uh, to another team that we had beaten in the past several times, I'll never forget that Coach Ludd stood up, picked up a baseball and said to us, gentlemen, this is a baseball. It's what we play the game with. And now I'll tell you the offensive version. He actually went, ladies, this is a baseball. It hurt. It was a a sting. We were in a, you know, the gold division semi-championship, you know, round of games. And and there was another team that eked their way in. And we had one, we went on a seven-game winning streak. And we had this beautiful record with like two losses all season. And you know what the problem is? We went in there with a bunch of arrogant, cocky jerks thinking that this other team who eked their way into the playoffs, they were going to be nothing. We were going to blow these chumps out. It'd be an easy win. Get a W real quick. And it's very easy to forget the fundamentals on all kinds of different levels. We forgot the fundamentals of baseball that afternoon. And we lost. Next, we see Paul's real instructions here. Paul expressly states that he's writing to Timothy so that the church of Ephesus would know what form of government the church should have. Now, we looked at this in detail last Thursday. The church should be ruled by elders. And the deacons should apply what the elders are supplying, which is doctrine. We spent a big, long look at it, but... Here in verse 14, that whole section of Paul, he's not just mindlessly going on, droning on about male eldership and talking about what deacons must be dignified and respectable and all these different things aimlessly. He doesn't do that. There's clear purpose in what he's doing. He wants the church there at Ephesus, and we know for a fact that's where Timothy is. He's in Ephesus. He's pastoring there. And he wants... Timothy to know, I'm coming, but should I be delayed, I want you to know this is why I'm writing this. When you find those little inner details in your Bible, highlight them. Because there'll always be things you can come back to. 
Paul tells Timothy flat out why he's writing, that you may know what form of government the church should have. Hebrews 13, 7 through 9 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. And this is why elders must be approved. This is why it is a calling and not just a career. Now, yes, some pastors make careers out of pastoral ministry. And I I hate to tell you, and I'll be very naked with my heart and very blunt and to the point, they're usually the pastors who A, quit, or B, fall into sin. And the reason is, is they may be trained. Maybe they went to a seminary. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they took an alternative path into the pulpit. But if you are not called, calling up someone trained is useless. You can't train calling. Can't do it. Impossible. As my people would say in Italian. It can't be done. You can't do that. You can, however, train the called. That you can do. And so I wanted to quote Hebrews 13 last week, but I didn't because it's a much more general rule that the writer of Hebrews is saying. He doesn't use the word overseer. He doesn't say episkopos. He doesn't say elder, presbyteros. He doesn't say poimene, shepherd. He doesn't say any of those terms in Greek. It's just a very general term for people who are in control of a thing or running meetings or who are ruling. And he reminds them, these are the people whose faith you're following. Think about their conduct. Now, I I got a chance last night to share because Rico got violently ill. Um, But it, it was great because that's one of my favorite passage of Philippians. And I was very honest with Pastor Lloyd. I wanted Philippians chapter two, but he gave it to Rico. And then the Holy Spirit gave me back the second half. So, you know, I'm not, you know, gonna start quoting silly things and get all Pentecostal and say, you know, like no weapon formed against me will prosper or nothing. But I, I still got to teach the second half of Philippians. And in that passage there is basically three different guys And they are different guys. Paul, who was bold as a lion, in my opinion, goes to Lystra, preaches, gets stoned to death, gets back up again, and he goes back into Lystra. Where they had just previously stoned him, by the way. Not sure how many evangelists would actually do that. That's Paul, bold as a lion. And then there's Timothy, who's a little more timid. So timid is he that Paul actually has to tell him, you should also drink a little wine just because of your frequent stomach infirmities. I think Timothy was extremely nervous, maybe even a tad bit of a people pleaser, my own personal opinion, and I insert it. And when it's my opinion, I share it with you, that it's my opinion. But he is not bold like Paul. He's a little more quiet, a little more reserved. And yet Paul says, He's my true son in the faith and I have no one like him. And so that is an accolade that is amazing. And then you have Epaphroditus, who Paul says is my brother, my fellow workman and a fellow soldier. One of those guys who worked behind the seeds just with no thought 
of anyone saying anything positive about him. His care, his love for the Philippians. They had heard that he was sick and he was upset that they were upset that he was sick. That's amazing. And so you got three different guys right in a row. Boom, boom, boom. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. And you know what the honest to goodness truth is? They all had the exact same mark of godly leadership. A humble life that is to be imitated as we walk with Christ. For all of those guys imitated Christ. And remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, as I imitate Christ, imitate me. Man, some people have got that one absolutely nutty and backwards. Paul never said, follow me or imitate me. Don't cut verses short in the Bible. You get very bad heretical doctrines. It's not what Paul said. The ESV clearly delineates it better than most English versions. As I imitate Christ, imitate me. And so that's an amazing thing about leadership. In the church, which is not corporate USA, it's not heavy-handed, ironclad, beating people. Your elders should be godly men who lead like shepherds. For that's God's heart for his church. But it leads me to a sneaky suspicion, along with a lot of other different theologians, that something was happening in Ephesus. Paul usually doesn't needlessly write any epistle. Matter of fact, I'll go out on a limb and tell you, he never needlessly writes anything, like all the epistles. You go through everything else that Paul wrote, and most of the things that Paul writes are what we would call ad hoc. That's your big Latin word of the day. Ad hoc means in need of. It's because it was necessary. Why does Paul write 1 Corinthians? Because the Corinthians are acting like a bunch of carnal Christians, acting like babes in Christ. And he has to write that, hey, you've got sin in the church and it's not so bueno, okay? No good. And then what does Paul have to do? He has to write up a follow-up letter because they didn't really obey and follow some of the things he outlined in the first letter he writes them. And so what about 2 Corinthians? Well, it's just as much ad hoc as 1 Corinthians is. All the letters that everyone received in Galatia. Galatians is an interesting one because go read your Bible. It doesn't say to the church of Galatia because Galatia isn't a city. It's a region in southern Turkey. It's to the churches, E-S, in a plural form, to the churches of the Galatia. We're talking anywhere from seven to ten churches. And the Judaizers had come in and are telling all the gentle converts, you need to live just like Jews if you're actually going to be Christians. And Paul says, absolutely not. Incorrect. Remember, my beloved brothers and sisters, Jesus plus anything equals heresy. All right? Jesus plus, Jesus plus anything ministries turn me immediately off. Now, you can't take the grace of God and stack anything on top of it. You cannot take the finished work of Messiah Jesus and add a lick to it without being totally in the wrong. Absolutely. For if you do that, you do not know what it is to be saved by grace through faith. You have no understanding of Ephesians 2.8. 
All right, you did nothing to earn your salvation. You will do nothing to keep it. It's the work of God. It is the work of God. Start to finish. Paul declared to Timothy that he was writing these things. And in these words, we see Paul's purpose. It's the very reason for this letter. If you want to boil it right down, conduct in the church is the theme of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Because then Paul immediately states that he wants to come, but he could be delayed. Paul told the Ephesian elders at the gathering of Miletus that the church of God was truly his because he had purchased it with his own blood. A distinct reference to Jesus's sacrifice in Acts 20, 28. However, Paul did not stop there. He also warned the Ephesian elders that ravenous wolves would come in and not spare the flock. And also that even from among themselves, men would rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves just one verse later, Acts 20, 29 and verse 30. And isn't it interesting that of the seven letters that the Lord Jesus Christ writes in Revelation 2 and 3, who is also in there? It's Ephesus. It's Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This you also have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation chapter 2 verses one through seven is the first of a series of seven letters. And it's a mailman's trade route going through Asia Minor. Ephesus receives this letter. And I think that some of the intertwined details in here are absolutely amazing because what is Paul 30 to 35 years earlier warn them about? Guys, ravenous wolves are coming from the, that's a church, ready? That's an attack from the outside. But wait. Men from amongst your own ranks will rise up. That's from the inside. So they needed to be aware of the outside attacks as well as the inside attacks. And it says that they could not, again, bear with people who call themselves apostolos. In Greek means a sent one. We sometimes don't understand all the complexity of that. And we try and make this this amazing title. There are still people who operate in an apostolic-like way missionaries, quite literally, go from their own home country and they take the gospel of Christ somewhere else. That is an apostle-like, although I would never call a missionary an apostle. 
but it's an apostolos. It's the one who is sent and who is going. It's like that ministry. But apparently in the first century church, lots of people were running around calling themselves, you know, apostles and claiming to have apostolic power. And here, 35 years after Paul had warned them, these elders in this church said, we don't put up with shenanigans. We don't put up with apostles who call themselves apostles and are not apostles. We don't do that. That's great. But what was Jesus's main concern for this church? I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so many Christians are so apt to run to that and say, look, the church here in Ephesus doesn't love Jesus anymore. And that is patently ridiculous. That is not what it means. It's not even close to what it means. It doesn't even say, I, I tell people, I'll give you $1,000 for you to break that down exegetically in, in Greek or English. Because that's not what it says. The love that the Ephesians had had at first, almost unanimously amongst real good Bible scholars, is their love of witnessing. And I'll tell you why you can tie that in. Because Jesus said, if you don't repent from this, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. And that is the place of witnessing. Go back and do a deep dive and study and look at beforehand what John sees in Revelation chapter 1. Christ who walks amongst the lampstands. The lampstands are the seven churches of Asia Minor. And in all honesty, at a certain point, the Ephesian church did fall into disrepair. It was removed. And so I think there's a very strong word, there's really strong wording in here and a warning in here as well that we don't get complacent in what we do. I cannot for a second stand here and say that the Ephesians no longer had love for Christ. The Laodiceans, maybe, but not the Ephesians because it's Jesus himself who he says, I see what you're doing. I, I, there's, you got some great stuff going on. What else did the Ephesians hate that Jesus said? He hates, that's right, Jesus hates things. Don't get all hung up on verbiage. Hate is not the opposite of love anyway, okay? It's just not. Jesus said he hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Nakia and Laos in Greek are two different words. And Laos means common or the common people. And Nakeo or Nakia is to have victory or to conquer. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is literally the kind of leaders who like to conquer their followers and rule them with a very heavy hand. And Jesus said, I hate that kind of leadership. And the Ephesians go, we hate it too, nor do we allow it. We hate it as well. So it is okay in God's economy to hate the things that God hates. Love is to be wholly given over to the good of another. It's the most common definition for the word agapeo. The opposite of love is in hate. The opposite of love is indifference, which basically means you don't give a rip about anything. And I tell people that's not what it means to hate something. It's not what it means. Indifference goes, eh. If you're the kind of person who's characterized by love and you're driving down Route 1 and you see a soccer mom have a blowout and she's alone and she doesn't have a car jack and she's got four little kids in the back who are all wire riled up because they just played soccer, a loving human being pulls over and sees what you can do. Even if she's afraid to accept your help, 
you can tell her, I can make a phone call, I can slip my cell phone through the crack in your window, and you can use my cell phone. What's going on? How can I help? A person whose heart is filled with love and is characterized with a loving tendency looks for how you can bring about good unto others. An indifferent human being drives by and goes, I got four working tires and I'm going home. Hate is a different emotion. If you drove by that soccer car and you realized it was your third grade teacher who just made your life miserable, you might turn around, go get a handful of rocks and throw them at her as you go by the second time because there's a comparative thing going on. Hate, hate is, is this passionate dislike of something. And again, it's not the opposite of love. It's not. It's a different emotion. You see, Jesus knows what good leadership does. It matures people. And mature sheep in the fold will reproduce more sheep. Sheep who are fleeced and beaten do nothing. Actually, usually it damages them and and actually they do less than nothing. They actually cause damage to other people. And so that's why Jesus says that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But would to God that we would take this passage and realize leadership in the church is a very important thing. Amen? Amen. So Paul goes on and says that the church of the Lord Jesus is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You see, the imagery of these terms for the church, especially of Ephesus, it would have never been lost on them because the impressive, although highly pagan, temple of the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And where was it located? It was located in their city. You remember when Paul preached there and they shouted for hours, great is Diana of Ephesus. The Reverend William Barclay, who is a world-class church historian, gives the following description of it. He said, one of its features was its massive pillars. It contained 127 pillars, every one of them the gift of a king. All were made of marble and studded with jewels, and some were overlaid with gold. And we're talking about a massive temple with the most fortified and gorgeous pillars. And Paul definitely uses that play on words and that imagery to hit the Ephesians where they lived. You see, Jesus is the truth. In John 17, 17, during what's known as his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus is praying to the father. Set them apart, mature them, shape them, grow them. Those are all the things that sanctify means in Greek. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The church is meant to be the visible manifestation of Messiah Jesus on this earth. That's why purity in the church is so unbelievably important. Because when the church is impure, it sends out a horrible visible manifestation. 
of who Jesus is. Even to the point where it can be heretical and blasphemous, a miserable representation. We are meant to be the hands and feet of our Lord here. This is why Jesus called us a city set on a hill. He said, I am the light of the world. And then later Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, for a city on a hill, illuminating, it's bright. People are walking around and people from a distance can see that light. And what are you meant to do if you're a weary traveler? You are drawn to an illuminated city. We can't be hidden, brothers and sisters. And so let's make sure that at least the lamps of our life are burning pure. In John 18, verses 33 through 38, after being betrayed by Judas Iscariot, Jesus finally finds himself brought before Pontius Pilate. Verse 33 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? The man had the truth in front of him. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You see, Jesus only speaks the truth and represents the truth, for there is no greater truth than who he is. And this whole analogy here is all about the church, which is the house of God. And the church is the house of God because of several different reasons. And they're all really important ones. And I want you guys to grab these now. And I want this to be at least partially part of our focus tonight for small groups, okay? It's really important because unfortunately, a lot of young people today have a very denigrating and negative look at the church. And you know, it's like, ah, it's the religion of my mom and dad. Ah, they drug me there. Ah. You, you need to have a good theological, philosophical belief fundamentally about well, what is the church? Why do we use this kind of verbiage? Why do we call the church the household of God? It is because God is the architect. All right? The church is his design. The church is his design. That means he has mapped it out, all of the blueprint, all of it. And it is a flawless design. Not only is God the architect, he is the builder. Now, if you know anything about architecture, most architects sit in, a, sit in a, a building and design a lot. They don't usually strap on a tool belt and go out and make the building. 
Unless you're Rob Larson. God gets involved in everything. I said most. Most don't. Not only did God lay out all the design, he's the builder. All right, he's the builder. What else is amazing about the church, the household of God? He dwells among his people. He's the designer. He's the builder. And then he, he stays in the house that he has both designed and built. He dwells. Even in the Psalms, it tells us that God inhabits, or in Hebrew, again, that's the word dwells, amongst the praises of his people, which is why worship and praise is so important. So important. God is the one who provides for us, his church. So again, not only the designer, the builder, or one who dwells there, he's also the one who is providing. All right? He pays all the bills in his building. The church is the place where almighty God and his presence is honored. We honor him here. We bow down and we worship. And that amazing act. In Greek, the word is beautiful, prastocheneo, is very much where we get a Latin derivative into English of prostrate, which means put your face right on the floor. You know, laying out before someone. Because it's a humility factor. You put yourself low and you let someone remain standing. And metaphorically, what you're saying is you are the one in the higher standing. You're in the higher place. And I, I don't exalt myself in your presence. I humble. I lower myself in the presence of one who is worthy to be exalted. And last but certainly not least, the Lord rules his house. And he does so in an amazing, gentle, and meek way. And brothers and sisters, would we never ever mix the word weak and meek because they're different words. Don't ever take someone's meekness for weakness. Meekness is the idea of strength under control. Okay? Strength under control. And when Jesus found men set up in the court of the Gentiles in the temple, and they were basically cheating the people with dishonest scales and less than worthy sacrifices, lambs who were not without spot or blemish, ones that had blemishes. He fashions a cord of whips and drives everyone out. So I love when people say, you know, gentle loving Jesus would never, gentle loving Jesus drove people out with a cord of whips. That is my favorite Jesus. If I was ever going to get a back tat, that would be the one. Jesus just like cracking someone with a cord of whips that he made because it's gorgeous. Read the text again. The only place a Gentile worshiper could come in the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And what did the Jews do? They took the one place where proselytes to Judaism could come worship and said, you can't worship because we're selling stuff. And that's why Jesus said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. It shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So I always tell people when that craze came out 15 years ago, WWJD, what would Jesus do? 
I always told people, we need to make like a shirt that says one possibility is whip people for their crazy nonsense. Because that's a real possibility. You know, the left-wing Christians did not like that t-shirt idea. It did not come to production. It didn't happen. But it's still the truth. It's still the truth. Because Jesus also said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. All right? Jesus doesn't make you crawl on your belly, hit yourself on the back with a whip, beg forgiveness, and none of those ridiculous concepts we see sometimes. None of those. Because he's the God who, although he made all of creation, came down to save everything that was lost in his garden. And the truth of the matter is the God who is outside of time and fully omniscient knows all things, and he knew that would happen. And he still created knowing that he would have to himself incarnate and become an atoning sacrifice, which is absolutely what we're going to look at next. The creed of 1 Timothy 3.16, God revealed in the flesh. Verse 16 says, He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And in all honesty, this is agreed upon by most biblical scholars, this is one of the most ancient hymns in the apostolic church. All right? These verses contain a very early hymn, and it would have been in about three couplets, or what you would also call stanzas, and it was most likely sung in the early church by followers of Christ. It says that Jesus was manifest in the flesh, and this refers to Christ's incarnation, the fact that Jesus became man. He forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. For real. And we'll look at all three of these stanzas briefly. Next, it says he was justified in the spirit. This refers to the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' ministry and resurrection as he was also seen by angels, which must refer to the angelic witness of Christ's ministry and resurrection as well, for those things go together. Proclaimed among the nations, the same word we would translate Gentiles, anyone who is not of Jewish lineage falls into the other category of Gentile. All right, Gentile. In Hebrew, it's goyim, and in Greek, it's ethnos, from where we get the word ethnic. This refers to the preaching of Christ to the nations. Because as Christ was preached, he was believed on in the world. And that, that refers to the response of individual to God's plan of salvation. He was also received up in glory. This is definitely a reference to Acts 1.8, where he is brought up. He speaks his last words there in verse 8. Verse 9, he is taken up. And what do we have? We have the ministry of angels there. As all of his followers look up into the heavens with jaw wide open, two angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stare into the sky? The same, Jesus shall return in the same manner. The same Jesus in the same manner. I love when people say, well, Jesus metaphorically is coming back in the clouds. Really? Well, then he metaphorically ascended into the clouds. No one likes when I say that. 
No, no. He visibly, physically, before the eyes of his followers, was taken up into the clouds of glory. And it says he's coming back on clouds, which means if he went up one way and he's coming back the same way, then the King of kings and Lord of lords is coming back on the clouds. Because right now, Jesus is in his present state of intercession because Messiah is seated in the visible, again, presence of his Father, Father God in heaven, where it says that he ever lives to make intercession for, guess who? Us. I don't know if you've been having like a real difficult week, but I've had a real doozy. But it is one thing that always refreshes my soul and spirit to know that the same Savior who 2,000 years ago incarnated and died for me is the same Savior who also makes intercessory prayer for little old me and little old you. And brothers and sisters, that is an encouraging thought, is it not? Let's put a little meat on these bones before we break into small groups. Manifested in the flesh. In the incarnation of Christ, the incomprehensible came to pass. The glorious son of God left the splendor of heaven for our sake and became as genuinely human as we are also, yet without sin. It's exactly what it says in Hebrews 4. It says, it's not as though we have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin. Jesus has no sin nature, whereas we do. And I love when people want to debate me on this because Christology is my special field. There's nothing I enjoyed more in seminary and graduate school, and there's nothing I continue to gobble up and read than this. Sin nature is not inherent to humanity. That's everyone's number one, their number one mistake. It's not, because Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature until they disobeyed against God and then were set in their rebellion. So they were not created with a sinful nature. They were created in a state of innocence. And there's no one past them on that one, 100% God. I know that's a mathematical equation that blows everyone just right out of the mathematical waters but it's what the word of God says. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and truth. And John knows this full well because he is one of the few disciples who is on more than likely Mount Hermon. We're not positive. It says a high mountain and Mount Hermon's the highest mountain in Israel. And we know that they were also in the area of Caesarea Philippi. So it's probably what we want to go with. But he's, he's one of the disciples who's there that is often referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus shined, and the context is that it was at night, and so when he really set forth his brilliance, it probably lit the mountain up like a spotlight. And that was that one tiny moment where Messiah turned his inward deity and glory outward for one second, And it's John who records it and says, and he was more brilliant than than bleach and Fuller's soap can get garments. And it's a second. Jesus turns his inward glory out for a, a second. And it's almost too much for the disciples 
to handle. Because this is awesome to contemplate. Surrendering his glorious estate, which means being in heaven. All right? Jesus has coexisted for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. Okay? They coexist. They're co-creators, all three of them. And then he added unto himself a nature, that being human. He voluntarily entered into the human relationships within the space-time continuum, the world as we know it. And that is mind-boggling. Jesus became legitimately a man, part of his own creation. He was crucified on a cross, and that was a horrific and painful form of torture. He rose from the dead as the glorified God-man. And he ascended back into his original glory, back to the right hand of the Father, where he did something that no priest, either in the Old Testament dispensation or any of the gospel periods, was ever able to do. He sat down. Go look through the tabernacle and both temples you'll find one piece of furniture conspicuously missing, right? You've got all kinds of, you've got a menorah, right? Huge, big oil lamp lighting up all the inside, first in the tabernacle, then in both temples. You've got a table of incense to burn before the Lord. You've got a table of showbread, so there's food for the priests. There's a veil separating the holy place for the most holy place, and there's not a single solitary chair anywhere to be found because the work of the old testament priest was never over because people were always sinning you couldn't take five when your number came up you went there and you worked for a couple weeks and then you went and you took a couple months off and you came back and you did the same thing by allotment over and over in the levitical priesthood no room for slacking off all right No, that is why it was specific. Go read Leviticus, such an interesting book. You are not allowed to wear wool if you were a priest. And you want to know why? Because it's the material that doesn't breathe. No sweating for Messiah. No sweating for Yahweh. You only wore cotton. You wore linen and linen only. You are not allowed to wear wool. And if you don't think that that's a competitive thing, we'll go for a run later and I'll put on wool socks and you put on cotton socks and we'll see whose feet are sweating the most. No, can't take a break, no sweating for God. And then Jesus does something and it's a model of rest. He ascends back to the hand of the father, the right hand, the power of position, and he sits down because sin, guilt, and shame are atoned for. That's amazing, that's an amazing concept. You see, all of this, Christ did in obedience to his Father's will as well as for our sake. I like what Dr. Eric Sauer wrote over 100 years ago, old school German theologian. His writings are rich if you can find them. Dr. Norman Geisler, who I studied with, said, if his house ever burst into flames, he would run in first for his wife and children but then he would probably run back in secondly for his Eric Sauer books. And then he proceeded to give me a couple. 
And as I read them, I went, wow, this is rich. Dr. Sauer said, leaving the free, unconditioned, world-ruling absoluteness of the divine form, the Son of God entered the limits of time and space of his creatures. Origen, an early church father who I don't quote often because he said a lot of very wacky things, every now and then had a gem. Origen said, although Christ was God, he took flesh. And having been made man, he remained what he was, God. There's a very orthodox statement on the incarnation of Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. It also says in the passage that he was justified in the spirit. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. We find this early in Matthew. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus goes to his cousin, John, whom is all of six months older than him and also a descendant of Levi. And when he goes out and he says, I need to be, you know, baptized, John goes, no, I need to be baptized by you. And then Jesus uses a very technical term. All right, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I personally believe this is symbolic of Jesus's washing just as all priests were washed before they ever served in the temple. John being a true Levite would have understood that and then he did it. You see, this isn't a baptism of repentance because Jesus has nothing to repent over. And that's what John had been doing. He had been turning people's hearts back to the Father. It was a baptism of repentance. That's not what Christian baptism is though. Christian baptism is a symbol. It's an outward symbol of an inward change. This is very different. I think this is very ceremonially in its nature, a way for Jesus to tell John, this is my ministry. This is a part of my priestly ministry. Because if you read the Old Testament, you find out in Daniel 9, 6, that the Messiah is gonna die. 26, 9, 26. Messiah shall be karat. The Hebrew word means cut off, murdered, or put to death. So its semantic range is not that huge, but not for himself. And I'm sure John would have understood that because John is also the one who pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because everything in the temple system of Levitical worship was temporary. It was a covering. Because you sinned, you had to come back and it's another covering. And then if you sinned, you came back again. Jesus didn't just cover up sin. He atoned for sin. 
in, in the meaning is he took it away. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit, like or as a dove, comes and alights upon him. And so many people say, why? Why did the Holy Spirit need to rest on Jesus during the incarnation? It simply needed, or should I say he, the Spirit, simply needed to rest upon Jesus' humanity, not his deity. Because Jesus has two natures. He is holy and fully God, and he is also fully and holy man. And the spirit was necessary for that three-year incarnational ministry. After that, no. After that, Jesus sends the spirit to indwell all of his believers. So he was justified in the spirit. And last but certainly not least, he was proclaimed among the nations. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. What a beautiful passage on the power of the gospel. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. That's the power of the gospel. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 shows us what I think is the culmination of the preaching of the gospel because it's one of my favorite passages in all of Revelation and that's saying something. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so what does the gospel do? The gospel is the timeless transformer. Whether you take it across the street or whether you take it across an ocean. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves from the uttermost to the guttermost. All peoples, tribes, tribes and tongues. So why? Why the incarnation? And why do we make so much of it? I'm gonna level with you. It's far more Jewish than you think. I mean, I did put on my Israel shirt, so. And you knew that I, that I lean messianic in my theology anyway, so no one should be very surprised by this. The incarnation makes absolute sense in the Judaic Old Testament theological mindset because it really is an expansion and an application of what we call the law of the kinsman redeemer. 
In Hebrew, that would be the goel. And the goel is one who can bring you back or buy you back. Yes, that's a bizarre mindset. But in Hebrew culture, you could sell yourself into indentured slavery for a certain period of time. And then hopefully you'd hit the year of Jubilee or a period of seven years and you would be released. But if you weren't, you had to wait. And if you were a foreigner married to an Israelite, now you're in a worse situation. Now you have to have a kinsman redeemer. And we see this in the book of Ruth. Four tiny little chapters. People skip over it. They don't see the significance. And it's amazing the gospel significance of the book of Ruth. For you see, the law of the kinsman redeemer is this. The kinsman redeemer must be a close familial relative. Has to be. He must be able to make the payment and the kinsman must also be willing. And we see this. When Naomi figures out who Boaz is, she tells Ruth very calmly, go and lay at the man's feet. And when he arises and awake, when he awakes from his slumber, he will tell you what you must do. And she goes and she does that. And people find impropriety in it and there's nothing. There's nothing sexual. There's nothing dirty in what Ruth did. All right, she humbled herself at the feet of Boaz, who Naomi said, he is a goel. He's a close kin. And Naomi's not stupid. She knows what's going on. And when Boaz wakes up and finds Ruth there, he tells her to go. He says, go your way, daughter, and I will do what must be done for you. And he goes to the city gates because Boaz is not the next of kin technically. There's someone in his family lineage who's closer and he refers to him familiarly as brother. And we don't know if he's speaking Hebrew to Hebrew or if it's his older brother. If it's his older brother, he has the first claim. And he says, the lands of our brother Elimelech, who has fallen, which means he died, is up for redemption. Will you redeem it? And he says, I will, which means he is the closest familial kin, and he has the money to pay for the land that was sold off. And then his brother Boaz says, and Ruth the Moabitess comes as a bride, and he goes, you redeem it. Which is his way of saying, no thanks. I don't want to marry a foreigner. No thank you. Because then I have to raise up children, and then I have to split my inheritance. Again, no thank you. He was not willing. Why the incarnation? Well, I can tell you this much. Our God owns cattle on a thousand hills, so he's not short on bills. Okay? It's not that one. Our God is willing to love and forgive, for it is in his, it's in his nature, for God is love, as 1 John says. Why the incarnation? Because if Jesus didn't forever wed his deity to humanity, then he would not be our Goel. He would not be the kinsman redeemer for he would not be close familial kin. And that's what he did. And it's a forever wedding. For Revelation 19 tells us clear as day, Jesus is coming back visibly, physically, on the back of a mighty white steed, sword drawn 
the incarnation, theologically speaking, is something that had to happen. And if it didn't, we would all be very lost. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. How did Jesus fulfill the law of the Goel? He paid for our salvation, brothers and sisters, with his own blood, with his own life. Let's pray. Almighty matchless God, we thank you for the countless ways that you love us. The mystery of the Godhead, the mystery of the incarnation. Lord, there's so many things that we don't understand, but so many things that we can grasp and understand. The gospel, Lord. How unbelievably powerful and important it is that we have a right understanding of who you are. That we would spread that to the four corners of the world that people would taste and see that you are good and that Christ is God. Thank you, Father God, that you sent Jesus in the fullness of time to redeem all who would cast their cares upon him and believe and be saved. Bless us tonight in small groups as we break up, Lord, and talk about these concepts. Bless us, O oh God. In Christ's name we ask, Father. Amen. So tonight when you guys...